Welcome to episode three of Draft Politics. Uh, I'm your host, Steve, along with my co-host, EJ. Welcome, welcome. And uh, just to let you know, we now have 18 subscribers, so welcome to all 18 of you. We have no Russian bots yet, so we'll try harder. <laughs> uh, we're going to go ahead and begin, as we do every week, for as many weeks as we've been doing this, uh, with Chicago politics. So you want to go ahead and give us a rundown here, EJ? Yeah, sure. So it is the day before the runoff. So it's April 1st, not an April Fool's joke here. We've got the runoff election tomorrow. And as we've been kind of covering the last few weeks, we've got uh, some highlights from the mayoral race, the aldermanics, and for the first time ever, an interesting treasurer's race. And I've got to say that this election cycle really has felt endless. As endless as Inagata De Vita, yes, which just which came on. Now playing in the background. The bar I don't know that if we're here at tonight. Anyhow, uh, yeah, so uh, basically getting down to the sort of the last arguments. Um, and, you know, a lot of the heat we've seen right now is Preckwinkle going on TV with all of her ads, um, going after Lori. Um, and, but the poll is still favoring Lori at this point. So yeah, great deal. It, it looks like she's in solid shape, and, you know, that's just going to be Preckwinkle trying to make up whatever ground she can. So, yeah. Well, and what was interesting, last week we had noted that Preckwinkle and her campaign had pulled all of her TV ads for, they said, strategic reasons, but they couldn't say what those reasons were. They came back this week with some ads that were really attacking Lori about a fire that had happened in Chicago a number of years ago when Lori was overseeing emergency management at the city, and there was a, uh, an incident with some tapes uh, from the 911 office being destroyed, and the judge had said that Lori had not done enough to protect those tapes. Um, interestingly, immediately following, the family that was directly involved in that had come out and said it was wrong to use them as a sort of pawn for the political attacks. Uh, Tony was unapologetic. Uh, in one of the debates, she had acknowledged that her team had found that and shopped it to the news outlets and said, well, it's an important thing for people to know, but couldn't really explain why. So none uh, of the outlets picked it up. It was just then she pushed it as TV ad spots and yes. went from there. And okay. then they picked it up. So really interesting on that front. And I think the other interesting th thing that happened was both candidates sort of backed out of commitments that they had around the city to be with the Reverend Jesse Jackson and Rainbow Push to sign a unity pledge to say that on the 3rd of April, they're going to get together and hold a joint press conference and say, we're all in this together. We're all friends. Yeah. I mean, I think that goes to show just how far and how divisive the rhetoric has gotten in this cycle. Absolutely. You know, and I think it's like, it's it's easy to get lost in that that you know getting wedded to one particular candidate and fighting for them and lose sight of the fact that ultimately at the end of the day we're all heading largely the same direction with a lot of the same ideals and a vision you know and two different people have different backgrounds different thoughts on how they want to execute on it but you know we're gonna get that settled here very shortly now and you know we're gonna have to get behind whoever that is. And see how it goes. And if in four years that, you know, that doesn't pan out, we'll have another chance to come back because that's how democracy works. <laughs> yeah. And we have been talking all along about how the rhetoric and the language has just kept ramping up. And we've seen it from different sides in every race. I think the most surprising for me has been the mayoral election. 
because we had probably, in my mind, one of the least likely outcomes of the general election to have two African-American women in the runoff. I mean, I sort of, I had this vision of wouldn't that be great? And then it turned out to actually happen, and I was shocked. And it's, it's really good to see. So what about the Aldermanics? I know we're here today at Dovetail Brewery, 1800 yes, West Bell Plain. 47th Ward having a beer. Um, and uh, the, the attack ads on Matt Martin have been kind of hilarious to see. I mean, there's, there's been the standard flyers, which are saying he's trying to raise your taxes. But the photo they use of Matt Martin on these is just kind of funny. You should, guys should Google this. Take a look and see if you can find it. But he just looks very friendly and nice. I don't know, like, normally expect them to make everybody look evil, but somehow did not do that here. Um, and I think it's an interesting comment on, like, what's going to work better in the end. Is it going to be a volunteer-driven kind of grassroots campaign with a lot of door knocking and personal interaction? Or is it going to be one that's been largely an air campaign with robocalls and, you know, ads on Facebook and TV and, you know, and emails and things like that. So which one of those is actually going to be the most effective? You can buy a lot of uh, a lot of communication with people, but how good is that communication in the end? Yeah. Um, obviously, Negrone has a lot of room to make up for with Matt having come in in the 40% range uh, when he ran the first time. So, you know, that's obviously a factor, too. But uh, overall, I tend to think that you know, the more volunteer-driven effort is the better bet, especially in a smaller alderman race, but we'll see how it plays out. Well, and something that's interesting, having knocked some doors in some of these wards, is that you can't reach everybody. So even if you are in 47 that has large swaths of land that are single-family homes, and, you know, you're walking up the stairs, walking down the stairs, you know, it's still really hard to canvas and knock doors in, apartment buildings, multi-tenant units, even, you know, two flats, three flats. It's really hard to get traction there. And I think, you know, that combination of things. Yeah, it's know, it's hard to have a conversation with a voter if you can't even get in the building. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yep, and yep. that really, you know, makes me think about things like mailers, which we see a ton of. And, you know, I wanted to bring up today just because, the sheer volume of them I've gotten, and I know I'm in a different ward than you are. So what's your what's your volume of mailers? Oh, it's, of mailers? it's pretty bad. Yeah. yeah, I mean we get endless attack ads from the grown. Um, we've gotten some mailers from Matt, but not to the same degree. Um, <clears throat> I know that um, in full disclosure, I've been working with Matt Martin's campaign that uh, a letter that I had drafted to people saying, "Hey, I like Matt Martin. You should vote for him." Went out to some of my neighbors. Uh, they had mentioned to me that they were surprised to get a letter from me. Um, so yeah, so it's uh, it's gonna be interesting to see kind of like what that what that does versus just a cardboard flyer or whatever that's just you know endless bullet point attack ads. Yeah, it really is. I think in our race, and I'm in the 33rd ward, we've gotten I would say about 10 inches of mailers. Oh yeah, and I know that those cost somewhere between five and ten thousand dollars a piece, depending on how broad you're sending them, um, and probably upwards of there if you're doing even larger mailers but the sheer number blows me away in some days i get two or three or four and they're largely duplicative and some of them are attack ads some of them are positive and you just kind of get sick of them and you wonder how much people 
actually see them. There's like a diminishing point of returns on it. There must be. And you combine yeah. that with door hangers, right? Because people are out knocking on doors and sliding things in your weather stripping and hanging them on your doorknob. I don't know how much that really does. I yeah. will say that. And I remember from like when I've gone and done hanging of you know door hangers and things like that <coughs> and walking back through a neighborhood afterwards and seeing them falling along the street and you know it's just like always feels like such a waste but it's what you have to do to get the message out and so it's just a matter of like how effective is that after a point yeah i'd really love to know i mean i, I know that all of the consultants push it <laughs> but it would be great to actually find a way to quantify the efficacy for sure of all of that i i do think that talking to voters one-on-one -on -one, canvassing the grassroots approach is probably more yeah. effective. It's just hard to get that two-minute elevator speech time uh, it is. to talk to them. It is. What about the 40th? What do you yeah, think there? Yeah, so I've been seeing uh, some stuff online of basically people getting a lot of calls from O'Connor, uh, going after Vasquez. Um, the main attack, of course, being, you know, Vasquez's rap battle past. Um, and for those of you who haven't followed this, he's... He, you know, he was, did rap when he was younger, um, and he said some things that were transphobic, homophobic, et cetera, et cetera, and nothing that looks good. But, you know, you look at it, this was things done when he was in his, early, his late teens, early 20s. You know, he's now older and, you know, has been pushing for pretty progressive values. So the question is, you know, is that, does that weigh against who you think he is now? And ultimately, a lot of that is just a personal attack by O'Connor, who has a pretty lousy track record himself. So He does. He does. And, you know, having met Andre, I don't think that any of that is reflective of who he is as a person. And we saw, you know, what some people thought was going to trip up Daniel Espada at the very end of his right. campaign. Oh, yeah, Something yeah. that was just as or more objectionable, and it didn't impact him. So, yeah. I mean, I think we'll see what effect that will have on people. I... I honestly don't have a good feel in the 40th Ward how close it is. Yeah, and we knew. I mean, we knew a couple of the candidates that were running in that. Neither one of them made it to the uh, to the runoff, and, and so it's come down to Vasquez. So we'll see kind of how much traction you can get um, against O'Connor. So, um, but you know, it's it's interesting because O'Connor's history he goes back to the council wars. I mean, he's been around for a long time, um, you know, and he's he, he's had some you know questionable racial stuff, and he had gone after. Ugo Okere had been one of the candidates in the 40th Ward and, you know, one of the trolls. The moderator after the forum actually came out and called him a racist troll for some of the stuff he was saying against uh, the Nigerian community. So, you know, it's, you know, we're at that point where I'm just, I'm, I'm glad we're almost done with this. <laughs> I am too. So, uh, yeah, so 33rd Ward, some someplace near and dear to your heart. <laughs> it is. It is. And in the 33rd Ward, we have, you know, an incumbent who's been in office for six years, but you know, part of a long-term political family, and there is a you know, DSA United Working Families uh, supported candidate running against her, and you know that race has come down to very divisive language again. And you know, on one hand, you have one group saying that the incumbent. Uh, is in the pocket of big developers and gets all this money from developers and really doesn't care about the people who live in the ward. Um, on the other side, you get this 
you know, this language about um, how DSA is just pushing for communism, some kind of very weird McCarthyist kind of language. They had a, a post on Facebook that said, you know, showed a person from DSA who had posted on their Facebook page that said, you know, the goal of socialism is communism. And I don't know about the context from that, but you look at that and you kind of go, uh, you roll your eyes and, and shrug it. But that's that's where they're at. I mean, it's... Well, I feel like that sort of appeal works better with older voters who have a stronger memory of the Cold War and and have this sort of memory of all socialism is evil. And younger voters are ones who say who see socialism associated with France and Germany and places like that where it's not... You know, it's much more about that, you know, government providing basic services for people yeah. in a way that we struggle to do here. <laughs> struggle to say, is to an say understatement. The least. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it will be really interesting to see how these races play out in 40 and 33. Absolutely. Um, because we have some similar kinds of backing from for challenger candidates. Yeah. Yeah. So what about Rom's money? And I know you, you said 47, you know, Michael yeah. McGrone's campaign has been largely. Yeah, he's got a lot drop. of money from, from Rom's pack, and so that's funding a lot of this ad campaign. And so, you know, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's, you know, in a small aldermanic race, it's substantial, especially because, you know, a lot of Matt Martin's funding, although he did get, you know, some initial donations from friends of his who are attorneys and things like that. A lot of his funding is coming from grassroots donors like myself. And so it's interesting to see, like, kind of how he's getting he's getting outspent at this point. And overall, when you look at back to the prior run of this election, um, the other two candidates, um, Negron and Dordek, both had a good chunk more money than uh, Matt, Matt Martin did. So... That influence is coming into play now, so we'll see kind of how, I mean, back to what I was saying earlier, it's like how much of an impact yeah. is that really going to have? Yeah. And I know people have sort of decried the money that Rom's pack has put into the 47th. And, of course, Rom, I mean, we're, I think we're probably a mile from Rom's house right now. If, if, if that. that. Yeah, it's yeah. like off, yeah, it's just like that way. If you He blocks. could walk right <laughs> in right now and hear us talking about him. Um, but he's also put money into... The treasurer's race, which I found very interesting. Now, I didn't see this. So, so Okay, so yeah. in the last week, that pack has donated, I think it was $25,000. I should probably look that number up to be sure, but to Amaya Pawar's campaign. So Amaya Pawar, outgoing alderman from the 47th Ward. Uh, Conyer Zervin, the wife of another alderman on the city council. It's very interesting to see those dynamics play in, and I have seen uh, people who I know live in the 47th Ward sort of go through some cognitive dissonance around this. People who want to support Amea, people who are Amea supporters and like him and know him, uh, who want to see him succeed in the treasurer's race. Yeah. But also are kind of upset. Well, and it's always, the same been, yeah. it's always been a complicated thing around his connections with, with Rom because... As far as I've gathered, like, there's not a lot of personal connection between the two, but clearly he's, I mean, you know, you go back to the previous election when uh, Pawar was a part of, you know, some of the efforts to kneecap Chewy. Uh, and so, you know, there is definitely some working relationship there, and this suggests that that, you know, some of that support is coming back to help Pawar. I think 
he lost out somewhat, I think, in his attempt to run for governor because he was seen as Rom's guy by a lot of progressive activists, and I think that hurt him relative to somebody like Dan Biss, who didn't have those sa that same baggage. Uh, yeah, and I know, I know that Amea has always felt like his position was always building a weird coalition of people. Yes. Like, he always felt like he didn't know how to best build that coalition up, or maybe that the coalition was always going to be tenuous or strange bedfellows, if you will. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. I mean, the treasurer's office is not exactly a high-profile position. It's usually not even been a contested election because it's been appointed by the mayor, and it's just sort of kept going that way and i mean even in this race we've got lightfoot running for mayor saying she would get rid of the treasurer's office yeah. so you know <laughs> you might vote for somebody who's getting rid of uh Poir or uh or conyers Irvin's uh job so I, we'll see what happens. which i found really really interesting and didn't know how to how to really uh really react to that yes yes um. <laughs> okay and so I think that's pretty much for election talk. Um, then also in what I will nominally call Chicago politics, but is weirdly become national politics is uh, Jesse Smollett. Um, and I'm not going to go too deep into this because it's been out, in, you know, on the news. And I don't want to talk about the dynamics of what did he do? What didn't he do? What's interesting to me about this is kind of how it has funneled into national politics. So obviously this started with, his suggestion that he was being attacked by somebody who was a you know a Trump MAGA guy, and so now of course that his charges have been uh, dismissed, uh, that Trump dynamics feeding back into this because he's wanting to yeah. come after him. He's saying he's going to send the FBI after them. Funny that Trump suddenly likes the FBI again, but you know that's how he is. And so there's that dynamic. Also, it'll be interesting to see how all this plays out for Kim Fox. Because there's been a lot of controversy around how she's handled it. Yeah. And I think hearing her distance herself but not distance herself, you know, and hearing what Rom has to say and the candidates for mayor, you know, like, and now Trump. Like, we really, I, and, and honestly, when I saw this break down and come down, I thought, you know, what we really needed in this election cycle was a little bit of Trump. Right. And thankfully we got <laughs> it. Right. That's like, just please. Could we can, not? Can we just not. Yes. Could we just not <laughs> inject that right. into the conversation? And and again, there's no need to try to adjudicate it here because we don't know any of the facts. I yes. love that Rom said, well, now I'm going to send Jesse Smollett a bill for the overtime worked by the police. Yeah. Can you, can, can, you can, do that? can you go back and, and bill all the people who worked overtime to cover up Laquan McDonald shooting? <laughs> That'd be great. I mean, that's that's the thing that just makes me so angry I, about yes. this. Is like the treating this like it's a it's this crisis and this giant moral problem, and then this the same gov uh, same mayor, excuse me, who covered up all that. So, anyhow, just want to talk about it briefly since it's kind of hard to not talk about it. Right. But, uh, and Kim Fox is up for re-election next year. Yes. Right. And so she'll be up for re-election. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I know that the police are not a big fan of hers. And, and given that, you know, I think they had a better working relationship with, was it Alvarez was the previous yes. one? Um, so, you know, how active are they going to be to try to undermine her? And, you know, who else might be running against her? But, you know, I, 
I, it's, overall, it seems like she's been a pretty good uh, progressive turn at that in that role. So we'll see what happens. All right, so that's Chicago politics for this week. We're going to move on to beer. As we do. As we do. So today we're at the Dovetail Brewery here, really in Brewery Row on Ravenswood. Yes, so this is all Malt Row is what Malt the official Row, title sorry. is. Yes. Sorry. Uh, so Ravenswood Chamber of Commerce's official billing of this. Um, but, yeah, this is, uh, yeah, it's right on Ravenswood. Uh, Dovetail and Beguile Brewery are both right next door to each other. Uh, Dovetail is actually probably my favorite brewery in the in the city, not only because it's close to me, approximately, but like they make just they're not necessarily the most adventurous beers, but they make really good examples of any kind of beer. Like their lager is by far my favorite lager I've had, and oh. it's and it's just like I don't know what it is they do, but there's just something very just specifically great about that beer versus what I've had yeah. elsewhere. And it's really a, a very heavily German-influenced beer menu. If you look at the, you know, outside of the Resilience IPA, which is clearly not a German style, but they have a Helles, a Lager, Vienna Lager, a Czech Dark Lager, a Rauchbier, a Rauch Doppelbach, a Woodford Reserve Rye Rauch yes. Doppelbach, which I think you have, comes in a snifter. Yes, it's quite tasty. I mean, this is a solid German yeah. German menu, and, and everything is served in liters, so 0.3 and 0.5 or a stein, yes. which is fantastic. And they actually did a, uh, a spontaneous beer. So they took a, basically had like a giant open container that would sort of take the random like uh, spores floating around in, in Chicago's air and made a beer out of that. And uh, it's, a, it's an interesting beer. I you know it's like it's definitely like a to your taste kind of thing, but it's kind of cool what they did. So yeah, I've heard about that uh, in California as well. Sort of this sort of popular. We're not going to introduce our own yeast. We're going to get natural from the air yeast to help the fermentation. Yep, and see what happens. So it's like you can't get a more local beer than that. No, no, no. <laughs> so yeah, so that's where we're here this week. Um, and then also you said, I saw you put in our notes here, uh, you want to talk about the top breweries in Illinois? I, yeah, so there was, you know, a, a report, I guess, as much as it is, out this week about the 100 fastest growing breweries in the country. Four are here in Chicago. Now, that may seem like it's not that big a deal, but if you consider the fact that Chicago's already got so many breweries, we're already leading the nation in breweries, to have four of the fastest growing on top of that, I think, is pretty remarkable. So more good beer news in Chicago. Absolutely. Which is only good for us because, you know, we've got to find more breweries to go to. <laughs> that are open on Mondays. That are open on Mondays. <laughs> so breweries, when you're listening to this, come on. Yes. Open on Mondays. Just, Just for, for us. us. <laughs> um, and one thing I want to do, take this back a little bit to politics, um, is talk about why we have so much good beer now. And if you go back to Prohibition, after Prohibition, the rules on brewing were actually still fairly strict, even after we got rid of Prohibition. And it was Jimmy Carter who deregulated ooh, to make it possible to do home brewing. And so home brewing is what basically led to this brewing culture we have now that has, you know, 170 plus breweries in Chicago. And so 
a time when, you know, deregulation wasn't considered an entirely bad thing, you know, by, by progressives, um, and were there rules that actually made sense to get rid of, and we could have that balance, whereas now it's like, so we can well, we want to just kill ducks for no reason. Let's do that. <laughs> and thank Jimmy Carter for the beer. Thank you, Jimmy. And I will and say for this. Houses. And for houses. And for houses. Building. I mean, Jimmy Carter. Should we all be like him? Right. I, you know, one of the things just kind of interesting about that is I've had conversations with people, and I have a friend who is a, essentially a brewery attorney. So his law firm specializes in breweries and distilleries and all of the rules that are in place around what is classified as a microbrewery, as a, you know, uh, is there a Pico brewery? But the number and your laws are applicable based on that like volume. Like how you can do distribution and things right. like that. Yep. And that is different in every in every state and in some states in every county. And that really drives how favorable those states and counties are to to having breweries. It's kind of fascinating. And we're obviously in a good place here in Illinois for that. Absolutely. All right. I'm going to go get another beer. Now, I did say uh, before that the Chicago Forward Pack, uh, which was the one that is sort of controlled by Rahm Emanuel, had donated like $25,000 there to Amea Puar. I was off. Uh, it is $110,000. So, yeah, so I was off by quite a bit. Yep. Uh, 400%, but there you go. Yeah, and one thing to, <coughs> excuse me. One thing to uh, bring up, Illinois Sunshine is actually a really great resource if you want to see what's going on in campaigns and not just who they're receiving money from, but how do they spend their money. Like, you can see what candidate uses Lyft versus takes a cab. I mean, it's like that level of granularity. And it, and unlike the federal level where the, just the data gets uploaded every quarter, theirs is much more frequent. So you can see it pretty, pretty yeah. up to date. Yeah, you have to upload any expenditure over a certain amount, over $1,000. You have to upload any donation over a thousand dollars within 72 hours or three business days something like that you have to do an a1 um, intimately familiar with these things uh, it is very interesting and it's really good uh, to check those things out i think this is one of the things that as an informed electorate we should all be concerned about how do people get money how do people spend money where does that go um, it also kind of speaks to the absurdity of it at some points as we were saying before, I don't know how much money the candidates in 33 and 47 and 40 have spent on printing, but I would love to know. I think it's a good thing to look at, especially when people say the environment is something I care about. And here's $200,000 in unrecyclable paper. Yeah, you could do a whole episode on just like election-related pollution. <laughs> like, wow. how, what happens to those campaign signs? Guess what? They just stick around until somebody... I don't know. Somebody just happens to pick them up and say, I want to get rid of it. I don't oh, yeah. It's kind of hilarious. Yeah, yard signs. Yeah. Yeah. I have stacks. Oh, yeah. And I was talking to somebody who said, look, we're going to take all these yard signs. We're going to cut them into strips, and we're going to make them into windbreaks for chicken coops. Okay. I'm all for that. It's <laughs> a decent use for it. So I did want to bring up today's sponsor, Bristle and Stick. It's a revolutionary toothbrush that is powered by your arm. 
It never re needs recharging. You take it wherever you go. You can brush your teeth with the power of your arm. Bristle and stick. Yes, and I uh, tend to use an electric toothbrush at home, but when I'm on the road, I use bristle and stick. Okay, on to the national political situation. Circus 2020, do you want to kick us off? Election Circus 2020. So, yes, we're uh, starting off with good old Uncle Joe. Uh, so we've got a lot of accusations leveled at him, or at least not, not a lot per se, but we've seen like some accusations of him inappropriately kissing, touching, etc. And, and frankly, this is stuff that has been out there for some time. Um, and the question is, how, how well can he survive this kind of uh, news in this day and age? Like, I mean, his, his way of doing things was perfectly fine back in the 80s, but like... We're, we've moved on from that, and now there's a lot more discomfort with that kind of weirdly close, weird closeness they tend to uh, have with women. And so I think that's probably going to hurt him quite a bit, but, you know, he still seems like he's going to try to jump in. I, I mean, so this is episode three. This is the third week we've said, well, it seems like he's about to jump in, that the campaign Camaro is about to get fired up. I don't know. I, yeah, you know, I mean, the these best almost seem like lazy accusations, too. Like, I don't know. He probably did some of this. Like, uh, he's been around for a while. He probably did some of this. And I'm sure he has. But the, are they keeping him out? I, I don't know. Yeah. Especially when we get polls that say, you know, Bernie is up by double digits amongst young voters for whatever that's worth. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, well, once again, the polls, like, we'll see what happens. I mean, that's all pretty early. But, you know, once he gets in the race, then it becomes a bit different story. And, like, we'll see kind of how, how much that, how much traction all of those, uh, you know, those accusations get. And inevitably, there's going to be more of those just because I know of how he is in person. And so we'll see. Um, I do like your optimism, though, or your certainty. Oh, so yeah. certain are you? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Once he gets in the race. Yes. Um, yes. Once he gets gas for his campaign. <laughs> uh, one of the funny things about it, though, was uh, Stacey Abrams uh, decided to throw him under the bus. Uh, there have been all these uh, or, uh, suggestions that she was going to be his uh, vice president and presumably floated by his campaign. And apparently they hadn't talked to her. And she eventually came out and said, yeah, I'm not planning to run for second place is what she I think the way she described it. So. Good for her. Uh, yeah, no, I I think that's I think that's a good call on her part, and uh, I'm really glad to see that. You know, I actually got a campaign uh, or not a not a campaign uh, fundraiser email, but like for her work in Georgia that she's trying to do to help uh, fight election fraud and things like that there. So you know, I'm gonna make sure to send her a few bucks for that. But uh, you know, she's doing really good work down there, and I'm really glad to see she's continuing with it. Yeah, and when I said good for her, I actually meant good for all of us, mm -hmm. right? I, and I said this before, and I stand by this. Like Stacey Abrams is one of the best people we have on the progressive side of things. She should be celebrated and put forward as a real champion of the way that things can be done. She was in a very tough race. She was fighting the fight in a way that I hope everybody does. Yeah, I mean, she's making it about more than just herself, which yes. I think a lot of campaigns, you know, it's like they run for their race and then they lose their race and they're like, well, now I'm done with this. 
and she's really taking an extra step and really getting invested beyond that. Yeah, it's, it's good to see. Okay, so now we're on to Mayor Pete. I think we so have a new segment. We have a new segment. It's called Can Steve Pronounce Pete's Name Correctly? Buttigieg? I think, Buttigieg? I think that's right. I Am think I close? I think that's I think that's it, Buttigieg. I, I've been laughing at how many ways I've heard it pronounced right. uh, over the last Buddha, few weeks. I, I think I saw you just said Buddha Edge, like, like Buddha and then Edge, okay. but, you know. All right. Yeah. We'll see. Uh, my favorite one, though, from this week was Pete Buddy Geek. Buddy Geek, yes. Which seems actually pretty, pretty accurate. There you go. Yeah, you could, seems like a guy, a nice guy. I could hang out with him. A little bit nerdy. Who else learns Norwegian uh, just to read some books? Great. Right. Great. He's uh, spent some time this week in San Francisco in the most progressive circles and evidently was very impressive there um, and is up to $7 million in fundraising. Yes. And I think one of the things that we might want to just start keeping track of is how much money all of these folks have raised um, because the numbers feel very big. Um, but how does it break down? How does it like break that. down? How much money is, is Mayor Pete getting from the Norwegian library of uh, packs that, you know, obviously would be interested in investing in his campaign? So we'll see how that plays out. But that would be illegal. They oh, that's actually. right. That's right. Yes, because it's yeah. illegal to work with foreign countries. That's right. Evidently. Evidently. I, if, I wouldn't you know. know. Right. I wouldn't know. Anyhow. Uh, and then from there, uh, Elizabeth Warren, uh, it, it came out that her finance director uh, resigned uh, after she decided that she was going to be focusing on small dollar donors and she wasn't going to be having big campaign events and things like that. Uh, so, you know, that really does show kind of how committed she really is to this. And also it makes a certain amount of sense that, you know, as a finance director, typically your income is based on your donations and what you're bringing in and so there's a very good chance that he decided i'm not into this because yeah. i'm not really gonna be able to make money doing it you know but i don't you know and i don't know what his rationale was or may just been just you know we agree to disagree but yeah it was really interesting i i have to say that i was happy to see that announcement from her um i also wondered in my cynical brain how much does it matter at this point does she already feel like she's She's been passed by um, because she announced, and that wasn't a big deal, and other people have announced since then and feel like they have more buzz. Maybe this is her trying to get that populist buzz back. Yeah, we'll um, see. I mean, I know she's been making a lot of announcements about different policy positions and things like that, and so if you're, if you're somebody who's very much of a I'm focused on policy and the value of policy, then, you know, clearly she's been putting stuff out there that might be of interest to you. Um, but, you know... Obviously, uh, Buttigieg is getting more uh, more hype right now. Yeah, it seems like Beto's kind of faded a little. Like he came out, and then a lot of people were striking back at him for being a little more conservative than people tended to think when he was running against Ted Cruz. So it's all relative. Yeah, it is all right? relative. Everybody's progressive against Ted Cruz. Yes, everybody's you know pretty conservative against. Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Right, right, right. right. So the most liberal Texas Democrat is conservative when yeah. you compare well, him to Well, and even by Texas Democrat standards, he's not that liberal. But that's, you know, that's another story. But we'll see how it all plays out. We're going to get there 
We've just reached the quarter deadline, I can tell, because my inbox was filled with uh, pleas to save every single campaign from the abyss. But um, <laughs> we'll see how that plays out uh, as those numbers come out from the uh, oh, that cycle. FEC. Oh, that quarterly cycle. So what about in our last episode, we just had all of the stuff with the closing down of the Mueller... Mueller investigation, Mueller. There it is. There it is. The, yes. the Mueller inv investigation and Barr kind of putting out, hey, I've got 600 pages, 600 pages of report. Here's a four-page summary. This tells you everything you need to know. Don't look at the report behind the curtain. You know, what is it now? You know, has anything changed? Yeah, and I don't really feel like a much has changed. I mean, we're seeing sort of some – I think there was an initial – reaction by a lot of people who were hoping that Mueller was going to come up with a big smoking gun and a, and a little bit of a sense of defeat about how that's played out. But then there's also been the recognition that we got a four-page summary of a very large document with a lot of evidence and discussion in it. And so we don't really know what, what we're seeing at this point. Uh, Barr had come out and, and said he was going to give a summary, which he then revised to being a redaction of the final document. Uh, Democrats in Congress are pushing to subpoena for the, there's going to be a vote on this, uh, to subpoena the full report. Kind of my inclination at this point is I don't expect we're going to see all of the document. I mean, in the public, for sure, because there's certain things that should be yeah. redacted. It's a it's a intelligence investigation, so there are some things that are going to be sensitive that they don't want to talk about. Methods and sources. Methods, Methods and, and sources. sources. Like hopes and prayers right. for intelligence. Yes, yes exactly. So uh, the methods and sources get eliminated, but then how much beyond that actually gets eliminated. And so what I'm kind of hoping for is at least the full thing gets pushed out to those high-level people in Congress who can review it and see if there's some something that's actually being hidden from us. But bear in mind that Barr is under no obligation to release that to them. They can subpoena it, but then it goes to court, and you know this Supreme Court isn't necessarily the, the best place to be running that logic through. It could go anywhere. Oh, absolutely. It could go anywhere. And I think the real winners in this whole thing are the news media, who now have an endless stream of talking points, because everybody took from that four pages and the lack of real information what they wanted to. Yes. And so now we have that to fill the, the previous run of talk about what what's going on with the Russia probe. Now it's like, well... We know what happened, but it's hidden in this document, so now we've got to get to that document. Um, but, you know, it's interesting to talk about, like, what other things have come up from all of that. I mean... Yeah, that's right. There's two specific crimes that they seem to have said Trump wasn't tied to, and that's in terms of, like, direct working with Russia on election hacking and the DNC hacking, right? But we don't know... There's all sorts of other ongoing investigations. So... There's Trump's inaugural committee and what potential corruption exists there. Um, there's Elliot Broidy, the big fundraiser. Um, there's investigations around him. And some of that ties back to hush money payments and all that side of things. And there's still the grand jury that was ultimately brought forth to review all of what Mueller was doing is still operating. So the report may be done, but that doesn't mean that the investigations related to it are concluded at this right. point. And I think that the words they used were that the grand jury is continuing robustly or something yes. to that effect. Yes. It was a little strange, but at the same time, you're like, huh. So 
you know, I, I think that it was a milestone, but not a an ending point. Um, and you even saw that kind of, you know, argument on Fox News, you know, through Chris Wallace even. But he said, like, well, no, but this is not over, clearly. Yes. And there was nothing div- decisive in this four-page summary that said there was none of this other thing. It was just that they had to move on from it. So luckily for us, question mark, it's not going away. We're going to continue to hear it. It's going to continue to drive debate. But I think what's interesting have been the polls that have come out since then, which essentially have been meh. Yeah. I mean, I was fully expecting to see Trump's ratings go up because of this. Like, oh, yeah, he's been cleared. And, you know, having a couple days at least of saying that he's been cleared before the pushback really started to happen. Nope. No change. Still the same. They could have skyrocketed to 46%. Right. Right. I mean, but, again, I think I've probably said this a lot in three episodes. The way people think about things right now is not so much based on new knowledge and fact. Yeah. So... People have made up their minds oh, about sure. Donald Trump a long time ago. Yeah. And the people who are talking anyway look at that and say, well, he was clearly innocent from the beginning or he's hiding the things that we need to know. Yes. Yes. Shrug. Yeah. So we'll see how that plays out. I mean, right now he's pulling behind all the major Democratic candidates. Um, I didn't really go into the details of who those people were, but I'm assuming that was largely like Biden and Warren and, and, you know, and starting with the Biden again. Yes. Not even a candidate. Yeah. But no, <laughs> they always got to pull. His, his name is too well recognized. They always yeah. got to pull him. But um, generic Democratic candidate A. Yes. Yes. As in a, a Camaro. Generic Democrat A versus individual one. Go. Yeah, there, there you go. Um, you know, that's <laughs> going to be interesting to see when the campaigns happen. And like how many attack ads will just talk about individual one. I mean, <laughs> come on. But um, I hope none. Well, you know, actually, that yeah, there's a there's a good conversation to be had about like what is the right approach when we finally get to the election, and we'll definitely talk about that more. About you know, Clinton went very heavy on attacking Trump, and that didn't work out for a myriad of reasons. That might be that, might be other things. But then, um, you know, you know, or is the more value in focusing on policy, which she largely did not do, at least in her. In her ads. She did in her speeches, but not in her ads. Right. And the 2018 cycle showed us a very policy-heavy Democratic strategy. Yep. Plus a bunch of Democrats who were freaking out. So that helps. (laughs) Yeah. Fair. Fair. Um, So also this week we've seen uh, some pushes against uh, the ACA, a.k.a. Obamacare. And uh, the DOJ has uh, pushed for invalidating all of Obamacare. Right. I think they wrote a brief in support of the lawsuit that's been brought and actually not even in support, like extending or pushing past the the concepts in the lawsuit that was brought by several attorneys general uh, from states, essentially saying, no, the whole law is invalid. Just scrap the whole thing. Right. Or as I saw it described, Obamacare didn't implode. So now we're going to try to blow it up. Yes. Which is disheartening <laughs> and confusing well and, and not surprising and not surprising i mean i mean a lot of this i feel like with with trump comes back to this 
and you see this pattern in all of what he's done is he feels like I feel like he's got a bit of an inferiority complex related to Obama and like he just feels like he needs to attack everything that Obama's done every last little executive order and and Obamacare which we'll call it Obamacare because it's actually fairly popular and they tried to use that as a slander at one point and now it's you know turned against them but um you know, it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out is, you know, he keeps trying to attack it. And if it goes away, I mean, our healthcare system is going to just sort of melt down, at least temporarily, as a bunch of people lose their health care coverage. Well, yeah. I, I mean, and again, Democrats ran on health care in 2018. Yeah. So just hand it to him to do it in 2020 again. I, okay. Oh, yes. Yes. Thank you. I mean, I don't understand. It's the. That's a bold play, Cotton. We'll yeah. see how it works out for them. I mean, part of me thinks, oh, well, if that happened and we lost to Obamacare, then the next obvious push would be, well, let's just do Medicare for all. And, yay, maybe that's so maybe the bad leads to the good. But as we've seen with Trump, trying to win by losing is not really a good idea. <laughs> I'm already sick of winning, evidently. Yes. <laughs> um, another thing that's kind of in the legal circles right now is gerrymandering is back into the Supreme Court. Now, gerrymandering is the most fascinating topic that you can talk about. And there was a gerrymandering case that was at the Supreme Court last year and kind of punted back, and it was centered on North Carolina. And there have been a few. Maryland was there. And at the time, John Roberts had said, look, you need to show sort of individual harm when talking about gerrymandering. So really can you prove that you know drawing the lines a certain way harm an individual voter not just about sort of the proportionality of republican to democrat voters at the state level and what that means for representation et cetera, et cetera, but kind of set a very specific bar for that and that has now come back up so we had oral arguments last week and this is kind of a pet peeve of mine uh, I grew up in Michigan. Michigan recently passed a voters, not politicians law uh, about having the congressional districts drawn by a presumably nonpartisan panel. And the University of Michigan and their, their uh, College of Public Policy has done a lot of research around this. And there's some really interesting math and policy that goes in. But now we're at this state again where... It's at the Supreme Court. It's a different makeup of the Supreme Court this year than it was last year when it came back. And, you know, from what I read in terms of the oral arguments and the people who wrote amicus briefs, you know, people are uh, bringing some math to the table. It's very geeky stuff in terms of looking at impact and proportionality and, you know, different ways to model different outcomes. Yeah, like what's the overall... You know, the overall power of a given vote and how much influence you really have and, and, and those kinds of things. Yeah, so to me, I, I wanted to bring it up. I wanted to mention it. There's no answer now at this point, but it's still there, and this could have a really big impact on the 2020 election. Absolutely. And certainly things after that, because 2020 census will occur probably. Yes. Unless, unless the census department is completely defunded. Yes, uh, and all of that will happen under Trump's watch because the election doesn't really, like, the what, you win the election in 2020, but you don't take office until 2021. So. Right. Absolutely. And so it is, it is a case that if the Supreme Court rules on it, which is not guaranteed, that will 
impact lots of things for the next decade, I think, almost certainly. So I think we should be keeping an eye on it. We should be aware of it. Um, again, if you're into statistical modeling, Cause some who, good stuff. Who isn't into statistical modeling? Some good stuff out there, statistical, statistic, statistical modeling-wise. <laughs> and we're now two beers in, everybody. <laughs> So then that covers most of our talk of national politics and a little bit about Brexit this week. So we're kind of in the same holding pattern is uh, Theresa May puts up a vote and the vote fails. And then she puts up another vote. The vote fails again. Uh, the most recent failed vote was today and it failed as you'd expect. So now the timeline is uh, we go to April 12th. So we're 11 days out from Lord knows what. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, nobody knows what. And uh, what's interesting is when Theresa May you know, sort of invoked Article 50 to say we're leaving, we're out of here, the date of March 29th, 2019 was set as Brexit Day. And I feel like that should have some, you know, trumpets around it, right? You know, Brexit Day, this is the day we're leaving the European Union. And the votes on the 29th went as they always have. Nobody will support her, her measure. And she even went in and said, look, everybody, take my head. I will leave. Vote for this, and I will leave the prime minister. And that, you know, for at least a short period of time, and I mean minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, 90 minutes, had some hardcore Brexiteers, people like crazy Boris Johnson, who had once described the whole Brexit process as a suicide vest. I'm going to leave that there. Oh, yeah. Just pause that there. <laughs> had said, well, you know, I'm pretty sad, but I guess this is better than nothing. Um, and was willing to vote for it or say he was going to vote for it, you know, in exchange for Theresa May leaving, which is really interesting. I mean, you think about the prime minister was not directly elected. Right. They're, you know, sort of put forth by the party in power or in her case, you know, the coalition of parties in power. She was not somebody who originally wanted Brexit. She said she was, you know, a remainer um, and then couldn't get it done and put a hard deadline in. Couldn't get it done. Couldn't get it done. And now saying I couldn't get this done. So if you let me get it done, I'll leave. Right. That, <laughs> I, that is sort of. An example of the sort of terrible negotiation techniques that she'd employed all the way up to this point. I mean, as Indeed. soon as she said, we're going to invoke Article 50, she lost all of her leverage because the European Union could say, like, well, we're still going to have Don't let free the door trade. hit you in the ass. Yeah. <laughs> You've said you're going to leave in X number of months. So. Yeah, that's I think that's probably the biggest mistake they made in all this is like if. If All right, you've decided that it makes all the sense in the world to leave. Maybe you sort of figure out what the exit strategy is before you actually try to open the door and go out. <laughs> yeah, I. it is a. It but is I mean, troubling. But, I mean, ultimately, this was all, it's all pure politics, right? It's It was um, a very right-wing, xenophobic push that led to this happening in the first place. And the reason why they can't really pull out of it is because the conservatives know that if they decide to turn against Brexit, that it's going to have a political backlash for them. And so they don't. It's 
kind of familiar to me that the conservative party is having trouble dealing with really serious political problems because they're afraid of their voters. Well, and I think <laughs> much like other conservatives we may or may not have talked about, they were surprised to be in the position that they're in. For sure. Nobody thought that that referendum was going to go the way it was. So David Cameron, when he called for it, was like, let's have this referendum, bitches. Right. Because there's no <laughs> way that we're going to vote to leave and I'll be fine and you'll shut up or at least you'll be somewhat neutered. Yeah. And then he lost it. and He's like, I'm out. It's on you. <laughs> have and fun. They said, yeah. Oh, crap. Right. I mean, think about it. The people who are the hardcore Brexiteers, which is a very British way to define those folks. But that's none the of them Disney version of the mouse. The British version of the Mouseketeers. Is that? Yeah. The xenophobic version of the Mouseketeers. <laughs> I mean, but you don't see Nigel Lafarge saying, I'd like to be prime minister. Right. You know, he's like, I uh, I was not. Uh, um, uh, I'll be over there. Like, yeah. I'll be Nobody in wants to own this. I mean, you know, I'll give Theresa May credit. She's, you know, putting herself out there and dealing with this. But, you know, the politically, what is perhaps the politically smart strategy to save one's butt is not the correct strategy to actually fix this problem and get through this. And so, and and I don't see that happening, changing anytime soon. Uh, although I did hear one theory is somehow the queen could step into this. Like, they would go to the queen, and they'd say, please settle this. And the queen, who's, you know, relatively free of the trappings of democracy, could just say, yeah, let's not do this. And maybe they respect that. I have no idea how that would play out, uh, yeah. though. In, in my mind, the most comedic response would be, I'll just marry Macron. Yes. <laughs> there you go. That's how, uh, as a member of the royal family, we've always solved these kind of problems through marriage. So Right. It, it works. Worked in the 1600s. Why not now? Why not now? <laughs> so thanks, everybody, for joining us for episode three. I think we've covered the wide swath of things. We've drank a couple beers here at Dovetail Brewery again. They've been excellent, yet yes. a little funky. Yeah. I mean, you know, teach their own. And I've got to um, say the vibe here is I really love the vibe. Yeah. I really love the it's vibe. It's a good place, yeah. Um, yeah, and thank you to those 18 of you who have subscribed to our podcast feed. Hopefully we'll get a few more. And if you like the show, if you don't like the show, we're not on iTunes at this point yet, but, you know, post on our Facebook page, give us some comments, let us know kind of what you're thinking. And if you think we should change the format or you think we should talk less about politics, more about beer, you know, we totally understand that. But yeah, uh, we can also be swayed by showing up at a brewery and buying us beer. Yes. Always. There are only evidently five breweries open on Mondays, so <laughs> twenty percent chance that you'll find us. Exactly. So yeah. So you know, and as we get a little further into this, maybe we'll pre-announce a show, and you can come join us, and we'll we'll get you on the on the pod, so to speak. So, anyhow, uh, thank you very much, and uh, we'll see you next time.